Why don't we have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for our time together this evening. We ask your blessing upon each member of the class. We pray that you will help us, each one, to focus on the Word of God, and that the Spirit of God might bring the truths home to our own hearts and minds, that we will be changed, transformed, Uh, as we meditate and think on the Word of God, as we try to apply it to our own life situations, as we seek by the help of God and by the grace of God to to, uh, be obedient uh, to you, Lord, and to your Word. Bless us this hour, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at page uh, 4 in our notes. I want to start off with a test here tonight. You didn't know you were going to have a test, did you? But, you? but you can use your notes for this test. So I want to ask you some questions, see if you can get these. So, true or false? Philippi was named after Philip II of Macedon. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Remember, that was the father of Alexander the Great, the guy who conquered the whole known world, uh, Philip, and he founded, he, he reestablished that city and named it after himself. He was a Greek. But, of course, then it was conquered by the Romans and so forth. Uh, number two, let me ask you another true and false. Philippi was an important stopping place on the Via Appia. What does via mean? Via is a Latin word that means road or way. We use via, it's an it's English word too, but it means, via means road or way. Via Appia. No. No, that was false. It's the Via Ignatia. That's that other road. So Rome's had a lot of road. The Via Appia is a road that runs in Rome. In the city of Rome. This is over in Greece. Oh, yeah. You should be in my seminary class if you say some trick questions. <laughs> That's the same response I get all the time. That's tricky. All right. Number three. Now watch out for these trick questions. Okay, now. Number three. The church at Philippi was established around AD 60. AD 60. Actually earlier than that, right? A.D. 50, about A.D. 50. Those dates don't necessarily mean much, but remember Christ died about A.D. 30. And Paul went on this missionary journey around A.D. 49 or 50. We know some of these dates. Acts 15, remember that's the Jerusalem Council. That's about A.D. 49. And then Paul goes on this next missionary journey about A.D. 50. So somewhere around there. Four, Philippi, uh, the city of Philippi was a Roman colony. True or false? True. That's true because the Romans... After they conquered Greece, they made it a colony of Rome that gives it special status. Let me ask you, not a true and false, but what missionary journey of Paul was the church at Philippi established? Second, Second missionary journey. That's exactly right. That's, that's um, around Acts chapter 15. The first missionary journey is Acts 13 and 14. The Jerusalem Council is Acts 15. And then Paul and Silas hook up and go out at the end of chapter 15, and they go on that second missionary journey, Acts chapter 16. They get the Macedonian call, and they go over to Philippi, and so that's around A.D. 50. Um, When Paul left Philippi after the founding of the church, he left who behind to help the church? Who did I say I thought he left behind? No. Luke. Does anybody know why we would say Luke was left behind? I didn't really say this last time, but I think it's in the notes. But does anybody know why we think Luke was left behind? Because in the book of Acts, you have what are called the we passages. 
where it says, instead of saying they did this and Paul did this, it says we did this and we did this and we did this. And in the book of Acts, there's three of those we passages, we sections, long sections. And we think that when, when Luke uses Luke, we, he means he's with Paul. So at Philippi, it was Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. But at, when Paul leaves Philippi, it's no longer we anymore. It's just they, 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 until Paul comes back to Philippi, and then it's we, we, we for a while. So people think, based on that we, the lack of the we, that Luke was left behind there to take care of the church, maybe. That's, we don't know that, but that's a suggestion. Well, one final one. Paul wrote Philippi, wrote Philippians from what city? From Rome. So these are called, they're commonly called the prison epistles because Paul was in prison or under house arrest, probably Acts 28. Now, we don't know that, but Paul does say he was in chains and so forth, like he's a prisoner and so forth, so we think it was Rome. We're ready to look at the letter now here on page 4. We're looking at the introduction of the letter, verses 1 through 11. Um, And... I've got this kind of broken down called the salutation. What's salutation? That's just a technical term for greeting. It just means a greeting. So Paul in his letter starts off with a greeting. And then on page 6 we have a thanksgiving. Paul often in his letters, we talk about those 13 letters that Paul wrote, he has, he has what's called a thanksgiving section where he thanks God for the readers. And then he has, beginning in verse 9 which is on page 9, a prayer, I guess it's made on page 9, maybe my pages are different, nine through, uh, on page uh, 9 through 11, a prayer. So Paul often has this thing. He has a greeting, he often has a prayer, and he often has a thanksgiving. That's just kind of way he starts letters. So Paul uh, sort of used the standard form of letters that people used in that day. Um, you know, I don't know, people... I guess no, nobody writes letters anymore. I've never written many letters in my life because uh, I don't want to tell. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to tell how old I am here. You know. What I mean? But uh, but you know, obviously, people back in the twenties, the ten, you know, people in the ancient uh, ancient times. But one of the things I look at every day is a blog <clears throat> that is a a blog that um, is it's a Civil War blog. And it started uh, two years ago. You remember, the Civil War ran from 1861 to 1865. So we're in the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. And these people at University of North Carolina, they started this blog back in 2001. And every day they post, since the war started, they, they post on the day. So today they, set, they put September the 25th, 1863. They put up some sort of letter or something from the Civil War, that somebody wrote somebody. And it's interesting to read these letters and stuff and how people, you know, people wrote long letters and they had a certain style and so on. And we have kind of a certain style, dear so-and-so and so on. We have a greeting. And they often have a greeting at the beginning of the letters. Well, Paul does that. He has kind of a greeting. And this greeting... um, in, in our text here, I say it's, it's verse, the salutation, it's verses 1 and 2. Now, if you look at all of Paul's letters, in all of them he has a greeting except one of them, and that's the epistle to the Galatians. He doesn't have any 
hardly greeting there at all. He has no greeting in Galatians. But the rest of them he has a greeting. And this greeting can run from one verse to about seven verses. <clears throat> from one verse to about the book of Romans, it's about seven verses long before he says grace and peace to you. Sometimes it's one verse, like 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, it's just one verse long. The book of Galatians has no greeting at all. Paul just jumps right into the problem of Galatia, and he doesn't say, hello, how are you? Hope you're doing well. Grace to you. He, he just, he's right to the problem. But here he has a short greeting in verses 1 and 2. And in the greeting and in the thanksgiving, the, uh, the thanksgiving that follow, uh, we often will see indications of things that Paul is going to talk about. Actually, people have written whole books just about the introduction to Paul's letters because if you study these introductions, as I said, Paul will often in the introduction say things that he wants to get at in the letter. He'll kind of hint at them. So we can kind of read between the lines. We're going to kind of read between the lines here a little bit. We can't be positive about all this, but some of the things he says seem to end foreshadow or tell us about some of the problems and difficulties that these people are having. Let's look at uh, the salutation in verses 1 and 2. I've got it here for us in the text. It says, Paul, reading verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. I think I mentioned this last time. He says Paul and Timothy, but that's not because Timothy is a co-writer. Paul just always sort of often includes somebody else who's with him. We know that you know Paul is the writer because when we get like to verse 3, he says, I thank my God. He doesn't say we thank our God. He doesn't mention Timothy. He says, I thank my God. He says in verse uh, 4, in all my prayers for you, not our prayers for you. So Paul is the writer, but he often includes Timothy, someone who the readers would have known. We know Timothy was with him on that second missionary journey. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they were there at the beginning the establishment of the church at Philippi. So they would be familiar when he, Paul says, Paul and Timothy. He didn't have to say Timothy Smith or Timothy this. He just says Timothy, and they would know who they're talking about. He would be well known to the writers. Uh, I mentioned here that Paul doesn't use his title apostle. If you study these greetings, sometimes Paul will say Paul and apostle, Paul and apostle. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Generally, he does it when he wants to kind of assert his authority, like in Galatians. Paul, an apostle, you know, not sent from man, you know. And when he writes to the Romans, the Romans was a Romans. The, when he writes to the Romans, he didn't establish that church, but he is he th- he believes he has authority as the apostle of the Gentiles. Paul, an apostle to the Romans. So it's not it's not perfectly true, but it's generally true that when. He uses the title Paul. He wants to assert his apostle. He doesn't have to. This is a very friendly church. Not like, say, Corinth, where there are people who are opposed to Paul and there are a lot of problems in the church. This is a very friendly church. There's not a tremendous problems here. And so Paul apparently doesn't need to assert. He has warm relationships with these people and so forth. We notice here that Paul and Timothy are called servants of Christ Jesus. We're familiar with this terminology, Christ, servants this is the Greek word doulos, and you've heard people talk about the word slave. There's a lot of debate about Bible translators. They actually debate these things about 
should we translate this word servant or slave? How do we translate this? And the NIV has chosen servant here. There's a lot of discussion about that. Um, many people feel slave is more appropriate. Paul is suggesting that Christ owns him. He belongs to Christ. There is a, you know, a, he's, you know, he's a very, it's hard to know whether servant conveys that enough or not. You know, uh, we think of servants, uh, maybe you think about the English sense or the 19th century sense of servants in a house or something. Paul is conveying more than that sense of servant. He's conveying more like a slave here. But some people uh, think slavery is maybe too harsh here in that sense. So there's debate about that. But clearly he's saying, you know, I serve Christ. Christ is my master. He's my Lord in that sense. He's addressed here to God's holy people. The NIV, I'm quoting the 2011 edition, they've changed the normal word saints here to God's holy people because the, I guess the problem with saints, is, it's always a problem for people who are just saved when they hear about saints and they say we're called saints. But I suppose today, the, you know, most people if you ask a person on the street about saints, they think of the Roman Catholic Church. They think about saints, people who are who are uh, canonized and are in heaven, you can pray to them and so forth and, and all that kind of thing. So they've changed it here to try to suggest something different. We're called saints because we have been sanctified, we have been set apart to God, we're supposed to live holy lives, and so they have changed that there to try to make it uh, more what people will understand. But he says here, Interesting to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. Now, you might not think that word, that all, that's where people start reading between the lines here. In all Paul's introductions to his 13 epistles, he never says to all God's people. He never says all. We'll say, what's so big about all here? Well, this is the only time he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus. He just usually says to the saints in Thessalonica, to the saints at Corinth, to the saints here. But he says to all the saints here. And there's a lot of repetition of the word all in this epistle. Uh, he mentions it here in one one. He mentions it in verse 4, in all my prayers. Verse 7, it's right for me to think about all of you. He mentions it in verse 8. He mentions it in verse 25. I could go on and on. Many people think we should read between the lines here a little bit. And, and this gets into this thing I mentioned last time. If there is a problem at Corinth... I mean, at Philippi, there may be a problem. There is a problem with unity. We know it in chapter four because Judea and Syntyche are are fighting with each other. You know, so there's a lot of references into this epistle to the need for more unity in the church. So there may be a problem. If there is a problem among the Philippians, and Paul may be kind of alluding, I'm writing to all, not just some. Everything I says is is to all the saints in Christ Jesus who reside of course, in the Macedonia city of Philippi. Um, as I say here on, page, on the next page, or where I say all believers are, I say saints here. I just use the, the standard term rather than God's holy people here. But they're saints because we are in Christ. He says we're, we're God's holy people in Christ Jesus. That's a common expression. Remember, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ in Christ. Theologians have a name for that. They call it, we are united with Christ. When we're saved, we become part of Christ's body. We're, we're, we're in Christ. We have this union with Christ, they talk about. 
So therefore, the benef- whatever, whatever benefits there are in Christ are, are given to us. His righteousness is imputed to us. God looks at us in Christ. That's a big term for Paul. So, you know, if, you know when, when Bill Combs dies and he goes to heaven, it's, he's, he's going to be looked at because he's in Christ. It's not because, you know, unfortunately our Roman Catholic friends and other religions think that they're going to, first of all, they're Roman Catholic, they're going to go to purgatory <laughs> because they've got sins that have to be taken care of and so forth and so on. But they're going to really get there by their own works. But we're not going to get to heaven by our own works. We're going to get there because we're in Christ and because God looks at us through Christ, through the merits of Christ, and so forth. And Paul just emphasizes that here. But then he says another thing in this introduction that's really unusual. He says, together with the overseers and deacons. Together with the overseers and deacons. Now, he doesn't say that in any other epistle either. He doesn't mention overseers and deacons. Now, just take from him and, and reflect upon who these are. I say these are the chief administrative officers in the local church. These are basically the two officers in the local church. Uh, most you know, evangelical churches like this church, uh, especially Baptist churches and other Bible churches, they tend to have two officers. They tend to have overseers or pastors and deacons, and those are the two officers. And, the, and we get it mainly from this passage right here, and also in Timothy and Titus. Remember in 1 Timothy 3 and in the book of Titus, uh, Paul lays out qualifications for two kinds of officers, for overseers and deacons. Remember the, uh, we've got some nice chalk here, don't we? The King James says, I guess we can write on this board, okay. says bishop. And that's the same word as overseer here. Um, It's really the same bishop, overseer. This is the the Greek word episkopos. This is the word we get, you know, episcopal from, episkopos. So... Um, bishop, overseer, uh, this is one term here. Now, in the New Testament, there are three terms that are used sort of, that are used interchangeably, and that's overseer, we'll just use their term here, episkopos. It's used interchangeably, I I don't know if I want to say equal, but it's, you know, somewhat, somewhat interchangeably with the term elder, and it's used somewhat interchangeably with the word pastor. So in this, in this, uh, so um, we're talking here about the overseer. The overseer is the same office as the office of elder or pastor. And you can, you know, you can see that by looking at uh, many, you know, numerous texts here. Uh, the word overseer is used in. First Timothy chapter 3, the overseer or the bishop should, if anyone desires the office of the overseer, or the King James says bishop, he desires a good work. But, you know, we could look at numerous passages. Let me just look at one passage here, a couple passages. 
Uh, I'm thinking here about the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. This is the Apostle Paul, and Paul is, uh, Luke is recording for us the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Remember we said Philippi was founded on the second missionary journey. And after that second missionary journey, Paul had a third missionary journey. And on this third missionary journey, as he gets to the end of it, he goes to the city of Ephesus. And he, uh, he's at the very end, he's getting ready to go back to Jerusalem. And he has in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 13, a kind of a farewell. And, we're, and Luke actually records what Paul actually says. And when you read this, it sounds a lot like Paul's epistles. It sounds like one of his epistles. It sounds like word for word. So he, he records this, this, uh, this uh, what Paul actually says. I'm sorry, I'm, Acts chapter 20. I mean, Paul, yeah, Acts chapter 20. And uh, verse um, 17, it says, Paul from Miletus sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Paul is in a city about 20 or 30 miles away from Ephesus called Miletus. He's on a ship and he's going down the coast. And he sends over and says, I want the elders of the church to come over and I want to speak to them. And then he begins to talk to those elders of the church. And he, and he gives some, some very you know, important messages here and so forth. And he says in verse 28... Remember, he calls for the elders of the church. Remember I said elder is the same as overseer. He calls for the elder of the church and he says, he says in verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So in verse 18, he's, in verse, 18 uh, verse 17, Paul calls for the elders of the church to come and then he calls these elders overseers. So Paul uses the term overseer and elder interchangeably. And then notice he says in verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God. There's the word pastor. Be shepherds of the church of God. So one of the officers in the local church... One of the key officers is the office of overseer. Overseer, bishop, superintendent. There's, it's perfectly acceptable to talk about Bishop Ken Brown. That's a perfectly acceptable term, Bishop Ken Brown. But we don't do that. <laughs> we don't usually do that in Bible churches or Baptist churches or other evangelical churches. Now, why don't we do that? Well, that's because there is there's another kind of church government, especially, called the Episcopal form of church government. The Episcopal form of church government is the kind of government that the Roman Catholic Church has. It's the kind the Episcopal Church has. It's the kind of church, a church government the Methodist Church has, the Assemblies of Gods have, and so forth. And in their system, they have three different officers of the church. They have the bishop... And they have the pastor, and then they have deacons too. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, these pastors are called priests, and these are priests too, but they're bishops. 
So in the Methodist church, you have a bishop and you have a pastor and you have deacons and so forth. So they really have three. They split this office into two. And so because in the Episcopal church they separate bishop and pastor or bishop and elder, we, tend, we have tended in our churches not to use the term bishop. But you, you probably, uh, I've, if you've seen some black churches, I've seen some black pa- pastors on TV, they'll say, this is bishop so-and-so, this is bishop... They're using the term biblically. There's nothing wrong with calling your pastor the bishop, except it's just confusing. You know, it's a little confusing, so we don't normally do it. So we could say Pastor Ken Brown. We could say Over Ken Br- Overseer Ken Brown. We could say Overseer. Doesn't that sound terrible? <laughs> Overseer Ken Brown and Elder Ken Brown. So this is a different term. The term Elder here is the term Presbyteros. It's usually, it's usually, this is usually becomes a Y in English. You can see we get our word Presbyterian from it because the Presbyterian form of church government has, is based upon elders and so forth. That's another thing. So um, we can use any of those terms. They're perfectly acceptable to say a bishop, pastor, elder, they, they're, they're, it could be that the term elder came from the synagogue. When the Jews uh, had their synagogues, the leaders of the synagogue were called elders. So many people think that sort of came into the church, that they call the leader sort of the local church, the overseer, as Paul does. He also calls them elder, and, and they call pastors because that's the work they do. So um, the term overseer is probably the best term because it describes really the function, what the person does. The pastor of the church is sort of the overseer. He has to oversee. He's the general superintendent. That's, that's a very good word. The term elder sort of refers to the, the dignity of the office. He's an elder spiritually. He's a mature Christian in that sense. He's an elder in that sense. Pastor des- describes more his work. He shepherds the flock. He pastors the flock. So any of these terms are, 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 are uh, acceptable. So in the term overseer, we have one office of the local church. The term deacons, we have the other office of the local church. As I say, these were secondary officers in the local church, most likely derived from Acts chapter 6. It doesn't actually use the word deacon there, but it uses cognate words like serve and minister, diakonos means to serve or minister and so forth. So in most evangelical churches, you tend to have two officers in the church. You have deacons, like you do in your church, and you have elders or pastors in the church. You've got two, actually, pastors in this church, and you've got several deacons and so forth in the church. How many deacons do you have, about six or eight? or Anybody know? Seven? Okay, that's a biblical number, seven. <laughs> seven. Yeah. So this, these represent the, the leadership of the church. So wh- why does Paul, this is the only epistle of Paul where he's, he mentions these things. He, he doesn't, and nowhere else does he say writing to the bishops you know, and deacons, writing to the overseers and deacons. Why in the world would he mention them in this greeting? As I say here, I say in the notes, why Paul includes them here is nowhere stated and is not entirely discernible. But, you know, it's nice to read between the lines because 
you can say anything you want to when you read between the lines. You know? <laughs> but many people think, again, that this it might be related to this problem of unity. Paul wants to make sure he's writing to everybody. I'm writing to all the saints, and I'm writing especially to the leadership, to the bishops and the deacons. It may be that Paul is pretty upset about chapter 4, that he's got to actually name in the epistle Judea and Syndicate. You know, maybe he's thinking, this sh- I shouldn't have to be writing about this thing. The, 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 the leadership of the church should have handled this situation. This has gotten, it really kind of gets out of hand when Paul in an epistle has to name somebody. And he, they get up, remember we said these letters were sent to the church and they read them out loud. They didn't pass out copies to people. They read the letter. And these people would be in the congregation, these two ladies. It could be very embarrassing. So it may be that he mentioned them. For us, it's very helpful because it, it confirms what we think about church government. This church has what we call congregational church government. The ultimate authority is in the congregation because you choose who your pastor will be. You choose who your you know, deacons will be and so forth. You elect your own officers you conduct church discipline and stuff like that. That's not true in the Roman Catholic Church. In the Roman Catholic Church, they don't determine who their pastor is, who their priest is. They have no, they have no control over that at all. That's the bishop who determines that. They don't ordain. This church ordains, can ordain its own officers, its own pastors. Well, not in the Roman Catholic Church. The, the church doesn't ordain anybody. It's the bishops who have all the authority and all the control in the Episcopal form. This is this, so. This fits more the congregational form. We believe that you know this church is practicing. Well, then in that second part of the greeting, he has the grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're used to this greeting. We've seen this, remember, in a lot of Paul's epistles. Grace. Grace is such a common word. You know, it's 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 such a common word. It's hard to define. What is grace? We use that term. Thank you, God, for your grace. Uh, you know, this was a, I was only able to do this by the grace of God. What does that mean? Well, grace means God's enablement, God's power. It's, it's God's gift. When we say something is by grace, it's a gift. We something is grace, we mean God does it. And so Paul is saying, I hope God will give you grace, give you the enablement, the strength, that's what we need. We need God's gift and continual gifting and gracing and power, enablement to conduct our daily lives. So this is a common greeting, grace and peace to you. So this is the, remember we said that in the Roman world they wrote these letters and they used a word very similar to grace. They used a word that actually meant greeting. You find that in an epistle like James. If you look at James, he'll say, James is writing and he says greeting. He uses a word that's commonly used. Paul modifies that term and uses the term grace because if you want to sum up Paul's theology in one term, it's grace, isn't it? Salvation is grace. It's, it's, if you want to think about it, it's just a gift, isn't it? It's just God just does this for us, not because of who we are or what we've done, We can just chalk it all up to the grace of God, can't we? So that just sort of sums up Paul. And then he adds, we think, the normal Jewish greeting, shalom. And, and, you know, this peace to you, shalom aleichem. So Jews today will say shalom aleichem, peace to you. Paul is using that same greeting here because, in a sense, it kind of helps sum up Paul's theology. 
the, the Christian life is one of peace, which means well-being. The Christian, you know, we've seen that song, it's well with my soul, you know. <laughs> it's well with my soul. I mean, Ken just went through a surgery there. And when you're in that kind of situation, you want to be able to say, it's well with my soul. No matter what happens this, if I don't come out of this anesthesia, if I don't come out of this operating room, it's well with my soul. And we can say that. We can say we have peace. We're reconciled to God. We're right with God. God is, is satisfied with us. He's because we're in Christ. So we can say peace. So this is the normal greeting we see from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace flows out of grace, doesn't it? Well, let's look at the thanksgiving then. That's verses 3 through 8, the thanksgiving. Remember we said this is like a lot of other Paul's epistles, like Philippians. Paul has a greeting in Philippians, and then he has a thanksgiving for the Philippian believers. Here he has, I mean, not Philippians, it's like Thessalonians, it's like Colossians, it's like, like a lot of his other epistles. He has the same kind of uh, format where he has a thanksgiving, uh, a, a salutation, a greeting, then a thanksgiving, and then a prayer as we have here. As I say here in the notes here, the, the content of the thanksgiving often anticipates, as I've said a couple of times, many are the concerns to be addressed in the letter. So we'll see in this thanksgiving that Paul hints at some of the things he's concerned about. Remember, this is an, a letter, an occasional letter. We talked about the word occasional. It's written for a particular purpose at a particular time. And we talked the last time about some of the possible occasions or reasons. And, and this, this thanksgiving will kind of hint at some of those possible reasons that Paul is writing here in occasions. He says, he begins with an initial statement of thanksgiving, and then in verses 6 and following, he kind of expands upon that thanksgiving. He begins in verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you, and all my prayers for all, you, for all of you, I always pray with joy. If you looked at a lot of ancient letters, they have the same thing. They'll say, greeting, and then they'll say, I thank the God so-and-so. I thank Zeus. I thank Serapis. I thank somebody for you. So they, this is, you know, Paul is following kind of a normal style, except he's talking about the one true God here when he has his thanksgiving. As I say here, Paul begins his letter by thanking God for his readers, and he follows this pattern, except Galatians, remember I said, where he kind of jumps right into the problem at hand because of the seriousness of the matter. So remember I said Paul with the Philippians had this warm relationship and so this thanksgiving, as we'll see, is prompted by these good memories, these good memories that he had of his Philippian friends. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I thank my God every time I remember you. Or I said the verb always here. It sometimes is translated every time or always. The, the idea here probably is... Um, every time I go to prayer and I think about, you know, praying for people, I think about you Philippians, and I have good memories of that. And, you know, and so I just thank God. Boy, thank God for this church. As we'll see, there's a lot to be thankful for because this was the church that really supported Paul, was interested in Paul, was interested in his ministry. 
He doesn't say this about the Corinthians. Uh, you know, it's hard to say this about the... He, he's thankful for the Corinthians, but he doesn't say, I thank God every time I remember you. He's very thankful here because of this good relationship he has. He's not talking about unceasing prayer, but every time you know, that I pray and so forth, that I think about you. And he says, in all my prayers, I always pray with joy. Remember, we talked about the term joy a little bit last time because some people say the theme of Philippians is joy. And I said, does Philippians really have a theme? A theme is the topic or the main idea. Is there a main idea? It's hard to say that there's one main idea in Philippians, that Paul is just stressing. Joy is more the mood. It's the atmosphere of Philippians. He, he, he's, he, the reason people often say it's, it's the theme is because the word joy is used so much. Uh, verse 4, uh, verse, uh, it's used in, in, um, in verse 4, it's used in 125, in chapter 2, it's used in 4.1. So it's used uh, five times. The word joy is used five times. The word rejoice is used seven times. There's a compound word, uh, rejoice with, that's used a couple of times. So if you count all those up, you've got about uh, 11, 12, 13 times. So people count those words and they say, the theme is joy. It's more like Paul is just the mood. Paul is writing to the Philippians, and because it's been such a good church and such a helpful church, uh, concerned about the Paul, Paul can recount with joy. You know, you know what it's like when you... Have you ever tried to you know, pray for people and <laughs> try to pray for some members of my own family? It's not always to say you pray with joy. You pray for them. They're away from the Lord. They're, they're this, they're that. It's not always easy to say, oh, this is a joyous time. It's not joyous to pray for these people. You want to pray for them. You hope they'll be saved. But they've caused you nothing but problem. They've taken your money. They've taken your stuff. They've attacked you. They've done all kinds of stuff. You know, and you've got to pray for these people. It's not a joyous thing necessarily to pray for these people. But Paul could pray with joy here because these people have just been great to him. And he gives the reason why. Notice verse 5. He gives the grounds, the basis. Why can he pray with joy? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Remember the King James says fellowship, fellowship. This is a word that means something like fellowship or partnership. It means a sharing with someone in, in something. Um, as I say here, Paul says he can be thankful because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, when Paul says your partnership in the gospel, the word gospel here means generally always by Paul, in the spread of the gospel. Maybe we understand that. Maybe you understand that already when he says, for your partnership in the gospel means your partnership in the proclamation of the gospel. Every time he uses that, that's exactly what he means. In, uh, for instance, chapter 2 and verse 22, he uses it. Uh, he says... Um, but you know that Timothy has provided him, has proved himself because as a son, as a father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. Well, what's the work of the gospel? That's the work of 
proclaiming the gospel. The same thing is in chapter 4 and verse 3. It comes over to chapter 4 and verse 15. They were, uh, it, it talks about the proclamation of the gospel. So um, these people were, Paul considered them partners in his ministry. What was Paul charged with doing? Remember, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. God told him when he was saved in Acts chapter 9, he mentions it himself in Romans. Paul was an apostle, not exactly like the twelve, an apostle to the Gentiles, chosen to take the gospel to the Gentiles. They were mainly to the Jews, those twelve were. He was to take the gospel to places, he says, where people had not heard the good news, and he was to, to establish. He was a church planner. Paul was a pioneer. He was a church planner. And Paul says, these people, he can be so thankful because from the very first day, from the very first day, from the very beginning when the church was planted there, they were interested in Paul's church planting ministry. As I say here in the notes, the corporation of the, of the Philippians is to be understood in its widest sense, but it certainly includes this, this uh, financial sense. Uh, later he'll mention this financial sense in chapter 4. He says in verse uh, 15, Moreover, as you Philippians know, 4.15, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matters of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So the Apostle Paul in Acts, Acts, Acts 16, he goes over to Philippi, in Acts 17, he, he goes in Acts 16, then he leaves Philippi. He goes to Thessalonica in Acts 17. He goes on to Berea. He goes on to Athens. He goes on to Corinth. And he goes on back to Ephesus. So Paul says as he was in that area of Macedonia there, the, the Philippians were interested. They were sharing with him. So this partnership certainly includes financial aid, as he says in chapter 4. So these people, it's rather amazing in a sense, these people were supporting the Apostle Paul in his church planning efforts. They were interested in church planning. And that's, that's, that's kind of amazing in a sense because, I mean, this is a new church, you know. This is a new church. Didn't they have a lot of things to spend their money on, you know? I mean, <laughs> I mean you establish a new church, you know what you're like. You've got a new building here. You know, if you, if you suddenly get an extra $1,000 a month, this church could put it to work. If you got 10000 a month, you could put it, you know, there's plenty of things that need to be done, you know what I'm saying? I mean, if you got a $1,000 raise at work per month, you, could, you wouldn't have to say, now what am I going to do with this $1,000 extra a month? You, you could find something right now to spend it on, you know? So the amazing fact here is that these Philippians were so willing to help Paul, they just a new church. They were willing, they were so interested in this concept of church planning, really, of Paul going out to new areas. And they were the only ones who actually sent him money, helped him along his way, because Paul didn't, you know, he didn't have he didn't go out on a deputation. <laughs> he didn't go out on deputation. He just went out. And maybe he had some gifts when he initially went. We don't know from the Church of Antioch, but he had to work with his hands. You know, he was a tent maker, a leather worker. And so he had to work as he went along and so forth, unless he got gifts and so on. So it, it is, it's amazing. This is a very commendable thing because, I mean, a lot of churches, 
have no interest in planting other churches. They don't have any interest. I mean, as I say, they're, they're interested in themselves only, you know. There's plenty of places to spend that money rather than giving it to somebody else to plant a church. We could use it right here. So this is a, a, an amazingly, this is a, a commendable quality, isn't it? That they shared with Paul. They had this vision for the gospel that they had. And he says, from the first day, that is, corresponds to in the beginning of the gospel. That is, from the, from the very beginning of the gospel, from the very first time that he knew them. And this is 10 years later now. See, we said Paul established that church in about AD 50. Paul is in Rome. This is AD 60. So for 10 years, they've been concerned about the Apostle Paul. They've been supporting the Apostle Paul, apparently sending him gifts and other things this whole time. What an amazing church this is. Well, then we have, after this initial Thanksgiving, we have an expansion of the Thanksgiving in verses 6, 7, and 8. Paul builds upon that. As I say, Paul gives a further but closely related reason for his joyful sense of gratitude, and that is his assurance that God's work cannot be frustrated. Notice verse 6. Being confident of this, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It was, it was God who had given them grace. It was God who had transformed these lives. Paul goes in there and preaches the gospel, and lives had been transformed. And Paul says, one thing I can be thankful about, another thing I can be thankful is, I know if God has started to work in you, if you've truly been saved, if you've truly been regenerate, God's going to see you through to the end. God's not going to let you fall by the wayside permanently. Oh, you may slip for a while. You may fall into sin. But if you're truly born again, God's going to get a hold of you. He's going to turn you around. He's going to work through these difficulties in your life. And he's going to make sure that you will be complete in the day of Christ Jesus. So this good work is refers to the salvation of, begun at conversion. He who began a good work. That's the good work of salvation. When we get saved, when we accept Christ, when we're initially... That's just the beginning, isn't it? And then begins this process of transformation, this sanctification as we call it and so forth. And the apostle uh, is saying here that I'm confident that God will continue this work right to the day of Christ. I say here this day of Christ is a phrase that occurs six times with slight variation, three of them in Philippians. It's similar to the day of the Lord, day of Jehovah, day of the Lord, and so forth. It refers here to the day of Christ when Christ will judge His people. Christ returns, you remember, we believe that in the future, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow, maybe a thousand years, we don't know exactly when, the Bible doesn't tell us, but when Christ returns, First Thessalonians 4, at the rapture, we'll will be taken there and then we'll proceed to what's called the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you know, we'll have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account and so forth. So that's what we're generally talking about here when we say the day of Christ. That's the day when our salvation will be complete. It'll, you know, if we, if we, we die, of course, we'll, we'll, our salvation will be complete. But if we live to the coming of Christ, then it'll take place instantly there. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm really, I'm thankful because you know, Paul doesn't have to do this. 
you know, Pastor Ken Brown doesn't have to do this. <laughs> it's not him, it's God who is working in you, both the will and do of his own good pleasure. I mean, he's there to shepherd and guide and direct and all that, but it's God who is transforming us and doing this. Verse 7, he says, It's right for me to feel this way about all of you. He's continuing his thanksgiving. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. As I say here in verse 6, Paul has made it clear that God is the author of the Philippian salvation, but now he shifts focus again in verse 7. He commends them not God. He commends them, not God, for their constancy in supporting him, whatever the circumstances. So he says, it's right for me to think and feel this way about you. I have you in my heart. You share in God's grace with me. In other words, Paul's assurance in verse 6, Paul's assured that God will complete this work of salvation. You got saved. It seems like a difficult road. God's going to make sure you continue, that you persevere to the end. But the sign of that, the evidence of that, is in their lives. You, you share in God's grace. I'm, when I, it's right for me to feel this way because I know that you're with me. Here's Paul. Paul is in Rome. If you remember the circumstances of the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, Paul was taken prisoner. He was taken prisoner and in, in Jerusalem there in the temple, on the Temple Mount, and he was transported to Caesarea. He spent two years there in prison, in a sense, under arrest. At the end of that two years, he appealed to Caesar. He appealed to Rome for his case. He was a Roman citizen. A Roman citizen could actually appeal any verdict to Rome. And so he sent off to Rome, remember, on that voyage, and he's shipwrecked, and he gets to Rome, and there he is, Acts 20. Well, apparently now he's coming up. His case is coming up. Paul is, Paul's case before the legal authorities, it's just like today, you know, if you get in a court situation, it could take years to resolve. Well, same way in Rome. Paul is in Rome, but it's not like he just goes there and the next day he finds out what his thing. He's been there for two years he's there, and he's there trying, you know, trying to get some conclusion to his appeal to Caesar here. And so um, Paul is, is there, and he's thinking of these Corinthians, when he's in his, I mean, his Philippians and his chains and so forth, and he is going to have to defend... He's talking about whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel. These words defending and confirming are legal terms. They're common legal terms that were used in Paul's day. Talking about def- we talk about defense. You've got to, if you go to trial, you've got to defend. You've got to have a, you're, you're the defendant, and you've got to defend yourself. And this term defending is used in that sense. And confirmation is suggestive proofs and so forth. So... Here, this word chains suggests imprisonment. Paul is in prison. He's under arrest here. It could be that Paul was actually chained to his guards. Many times we know that in these situations, the person was actually chained to a, chained to a Roman guard, and this guard was chained from time to time and so forth. It could be was actually... It's hard to know whether chains is, in a, is a metaphor for just being under arrest or whether he was actually physically changed. It could be he was actually physically changed. We're not positive about that, but certainly he's under arrest here. And 
So Paul is saying, it's right for me to feel this way that you are going to, it's right for me to feel this way that you are going to complete your salvation. I have complete faith in you Philippians. Might have some problem with the Corinthians over here. I wonder about them sometimes, you know. Uh, Paul says to them, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. He doesn't say that to Philippians. He doesn't say, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. You know, we understand that. You've been in church. If you've been in church for years, you know there are people, I mean, I've been in inner city for 30 years, and there are people I have known for 30 years there. I have a lot of faith. They've been very faithful people. We say they're faithful. They've been consistent, you know. I, when nobody knows anybody else's heart, nobody knows for sure. But when I look upon their lives in 30 years, I say, this is, you know, I'm confident. And it's sad when, it's sad when you have to go to a funeral of a person and there's doubts. Isn't that, isn't that the saddest thing when you go to a funeral? And I just went to a funeral of my, of my stepfather-in-law. Unfortunately, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I hope, I hope, but... It's not clear. But the point here Paul is making is that I feel this way about you when I'm up here before Caesar defending and standing for the gospel that you share in God's grace with me. I feel, I feel as confident about you as I do about myself. That's, that's an amazing statement that the Apostle Paul makes here. He says in verse 8, he says, God can testify how long, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul now has kind of a mild oath. Paul often says, I call God as my witness or I call upon God. Here he says, God can testify. It's true that I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. As I say here, Paul's longing for the Philippians probably includes both his desire to see and be with them and is concerned that they remain true to the gospel. And it's this same concern Christ has for them. I, I have the same concern that, that Christ has, with the same affection that Christ has. So Paul is calling upon God to witness to the fact that he loves these people, he's concerned about these people, he, he has this affection for them, he longs to see them. Well, this is Paul's thanksgiving. What a wonderful thanksgiving that is, isn't it? To be, to have a church like this that stands with you. Just think what that means. For 10 years, these people have stood with Paul. They have supported Paul. And his heart is to plant churches and so forth. They've stood with him. They've sent him financial support. He looks back at their lives and he sees evidence of perseverance, of continuation of the faith. And he's, you know, he's as confident about them as he is about the grace of God in his own life. That's a tremendous testimony, isn't it, to, uh, for any Christian, for Paul to say about any Christian, especially the Philippians here. Well, we come here to the prayer of Paul, verses 9 through 11, and maybe we should stop here rather than trying to uh, continue on. Why don't we call it a night here and... We will pick it up right here, Lord willing, next week, okay?